My guest today is Stuart Trackheim, CEO of Holloway Friendly, based in Gloucester. Stuart has worked in the financial services market for over 35 years in a range of strategy, leadership and business development roles for a variety of organisations, including life offices, friendly societies, reinsurers, retailers, banks, building societies and advice businesses. In addition to this, Stuart worked at the ABI for nearly five years in both policy and leadership roles. He led the Raising Standards Initiative and spent a considerable amount of time negotiating with both the FSA and the European Commission. He's used to negotiating policy issues with regulators and to supporting the insurance market to maintain high ethical standards. He joined Holloway in June 2016 as CEO and has driven the development and implementation of a new successful growth strategy for the business, resulting in a significant increase in membership and new business. Stuart has considerable board, exco and management committee experience and contributes regularly to industry-wide developments. He is Vice Chair of the Association of Financial Mutuals, a member of the PRA Practitioner Panel Insurance Subcommittee, a member of the ABI Protection Board and a board member for ILAG, which begs the question how on earth he's got time to be the CEO of a vibrant mutual. In this episode, you'll hear Stuart's thoughts on the life protection industry and how the culture of clarity and purpose within Holloway really guides the behaviours of his team to deliver great customer outcomes. So let's welcome Stuart to the show. Hi, Stuart. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed for uh, for agreeing to, to come on. Really looking forward to this chat. Now, you know, I know a little bit about Holloway Friendly and I know a bit about you because we've worked with one another and we've known each other for a little while, but there's no doubt quite a lot that I don't know about you and about uh, what you do. So perhaps you could start off with perhaps giving our listeners just a brief overview of your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that, Neil. I've, I've been involved in financial services for at least 150 years, it feels like. Uh, joined in, started in 1983. But um, I've done a number of roles over the course of the, the last 30 odd years, primarily focused on uh, business development, so sales and marketing, a bit of technical services. I've worked in the intermediary channel for a long time. I've worked for a number of insurers, mainly mutuals over the course of the last uh, 25 years or so. And Probably the most formative times, I suppose, were in so in, in the last 15 years or so. I worked at the ABI up in the city for a while, doing some policy roles, which I thought was really interesting, public policy work. Mm-hmm. And joined LV 2005. Again, uh, took over a number of uh, a number of different functions there, including um, initially running the intermediary sales business and then into the corporate partnerships business. Uh, joined Holloway four and a half years ago. Quite an interesting business, massive amount of heritage, uh, 1875. The founder of income protection in the UK market was uh, was George Holloway, MP for Stroud. So huge amount of heritage, but uh, a business that was largely inwardly focused and quite small and had no real ambition. And the board realized that there was, there was more that this business could provide. So uh, my remit was actually quite simple. It was to, uh, to modernize, to professionalize and to grow a regional built, uh, friendly society into something which had more of a national presence that had enough differentiation to be able to build uh, you know, a quality brand around it and to grow physically grow the business in terms of uh, membership, in terms of premium income, uh, and in terms of obviously uh, staff, our colleagues. And that's the journey that we started on uh, four and a half years ago. The first three and a half years of those, I suppose, were, were actually really successful. We had, we've had a really, really cracking uh, cracking run at it. And then COVID happened in 2020, and we've had to put our foot on the ball a bit for this year. 
And the most important thing really is that uh, that we now start to rebuild the momentum as we look forward into into 2021 and beyond. So um, yeah, it's been an, it's been an interesting journey. Three three cracking years. One really difficult year. The whole the market's had it difficult this uh, this year, and we've mm. had to make some tough calls. But the momentum should be uh, should be rebuilt again as we move uh, into 2021. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll come on to this year a bit later on, definitely. Just digging into a little bit more about Hollow. I mean, always a difficult question, you know, who are your customers? But generally speaking, I mean, is there a particular type of customer that Holloway is there to serve? Um, and, and kind of what do you do? I mean, not everyone perhaps will understand what income protection is. Perhaps you could talk a bit about what you do. Yeah. Okay. So in simple terms, income protection is, a, is an insurance policy that will pay somebody an income if they are unable to work due to accident or sickness and they experience an income drop or an income shock. So typically that would be uh, somebody falling off a ladder or something like that and breaking a leg and not being able to work. So the friendly societies, all the friendly societies actually started off by providing products and services to self-employed people traditionally. So plumbers, plasterers, bricklayers, factory workers, et cetera. And over time, uh, we've continued to serve that market. So our core market is still manual workers. Alongside that, some of the friendly societies, some of the bigger ones historically, have also expanded out into now looking after rate class one and two. So professionals and people who work in offices and all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of the the heritage of our business is largely in the self-employed market. And there is a big opportunity for us to bring some of those same, that same ethos, if you like, around customer service and around claims and how we look after people at the at the critical moments when things go badly wrong for them, uh, that same ethos could could equally apply into uh, into other occupation groupings. So that's part of the strategy moving forward: is how do we leverage our knowledge and experience from the past into the way that the the world is operating, you know, in the future. Yeah, and are your customers are they individuals or are they groups of people? I mean, do you do you target groups of people that work for the same company, or do you do you go for individuals or both? We don't sell direct. We only sell through intermediaries. So mm-hmm. we we sell through um, independent financial advisors, financial advisors, intermediaries, and the customers that we attract are all individuals. So we don't do group business, group insurance business uh, any longer. Uh, we only look at uh, at individual individual policies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fantastic. And um, just just a sort of observation, really. I mean, I've, I know a fair bit about this market because I've been around it probably about 147 years, so I'm slightly uh, uh, less less tenured than you. But um, in terms of um, you talked about the sort of occupation classes and the self-employed, I mean, that sounds like quite a, a risky risk to take on, if I can put it that way. And, and I'm assuming that some of the bigger organizations uh, that aren't mutuals perhaps take a different view of how they look at that risk. I mean, is that a fair thing to, to a fair comment to make? I think it's true that the the employment characteristics, the work characteristics are different, and so are the claims characteristics. So in a typical self-employed market, you tend to have more claims, but they last for less time. So self-employed people obviously will go back to work as quickly as they can because they're obviously losing losing income, and therefore they tend to they tend to be keen to get back to work quite quickly. In the office work environment, you tend to have fewer claims because there's not as many accidents, but the claims tend to last a lot longer. So it's a different set of characteristics, but therefore, in terms of how you would uh, approach the market, how you do underwriting, how you price for those risks, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, some insurance companies play in both in both sections, but not very many. Great. Thank you for explaining that. So let, let's dig a bit more into kind of how you how you present yourself to customers. And I'm, I'm thinking here, what, what I guess where I want to get to is, 
a thing that always comes up when I talk to anybody from this sector or indeed talk about this sector to other people is it's it's never been one of the most glamorous sectors, if you like, um, but it is an incredibly useful sector. I, I was speaking to Tom Bagri on, on the show uh, a little while back, and we were talking about you know the challenges around getting people, first of all, to understand the need, which obviously your financial advisors that you work with do, but then you know trying to lift the subject so that it becomes interesting and engaging for people. And, and the first thing that you're confronted with on your website is, first of all, a lot of colour, I noticed. And you talk about healthy, working and happy, your life in colour. I mean, what's all that about? What are you trying to convey there to people in terms of uh, engaging them? It's trying to demonstrate in a, in a, in a consumer-friendly way that the things that matter in life need to be looked after. And keeping colour in somebody's life is basically about look, them enabling themselves through insurance to have the right protections uh, when things go badly wrong. Mm. So in internal language, it's about being there, us as an insurer, being there when when a customer needs us. And what we've tried to do is then spin that round into what does it mean from a customer's perspective? And it's enabling them to keep to keep healthy, keep their life colourful. Mm. And I think it, it resonates really quite well. The brand descriptions are actually quite interesting. And we did a fair amount of research on this. I don't know about you, but a lot of, lots of insurance companies' brands are actually quite dull. And there's there's reasons for that, and and they're all all entirely legitimate. You know the stability and the structure and the financial backing, and that that seriousness of what insurance does for consumers should never be underestimated. Mm. But for a small brand like ours, we have to create cut through, and we have to do something which is different. And it starts with the brand, and it moves through into how we actually uh, work in practice. Mm. So when when I was talking to my to my marketing team, my head of marketing in particular, about trying to create a brand that that had cut through. The challenge that I gave her is uh, actually quite simple, which is give me a tartan that isn't the same as anything else in the market. <laughs> Come up with something which creates, wow, that's just really different to mm. get that first impressions done. Mm. But, it's, but it's not built on it's just about colouring in. It is fundamentally built on what we do as a business and looking after people at the time when they need us the most. Mm. And really embedding that in terms of how we operate our values in the organization, looking after people both internally and externally. And that all comes through in terms of the brand. So that's kind of where, where it comes from. Mm. But it's, uh, but Georgia, thank goodness, was, was much better at producing a, a brand than something that was, that was simply tartan. And I think it really works. Mm. It's different. It creates differentials. The underlying brand messages is also different. And you, you, you mentioned Tom before, Tom Begri before. I've known Tom for quite a long time, as you, as you can probably imagine. And mm. uh, at one of the the many successful life search events that he ran when i first joined holloway actually he stood up and talked about the fact that the the claim was the thing that we sell and we had already identified that our market has never been particularly strong about publishing mm. why claims happen why they're important and what insurance companies do and that to me was was clear water pretty much clear water we should focus on that aspect. Mm. So what the experiences of the customer at the point of claim mm. is where we've tried to, to, to demonstrate our, our differential. And it was great to hear, you know, a, a really important brokerage standing up and saying exactly the same thing at the time we were actually building our, uh, building our strategy. So uh, that was great. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, you know, just picking up on a couple of points that Tom and I discussed, I mean, we talked quite a lot about this conundrum that the industry has faced for, for as long as we can both remember, which is, I mean, obviously you're working through intermediaries, people go to them with needs and then they uncover those needs and they advise on them. But just thinking generally about 
empowering. Okay, the, the whole theme of this is about the rise of the customer, empowering customers to be able to understand this kind of protection, this this insurance, uh, knowing where to be able to get it from if they want to, and then you know really understanding some of the technicalities around how to set it up in the right way. It's really quite hard, isn't it? I mean, and you know, it's what more can the industry do if you like to try and come together to not only promote the benefits but just make it easier for people to access this stuff. So I don't know if you've got any views on that. Well, I, th- I think they're the, they're the same questions that we've been wrestling with for the last probably two decades, Neil, yeah. in reality. Yeah. And the insurance industry, I think, has made has made some great strides uh, in terms of simplifying propositions. They've also made some negative steps in terms of having additional elements of complexity in terms of the language we use. Mm. So, you know, as an industry, we tend to be quite technical. And which is great if you're selling to people who understand the technicalities, but of course, most consumers don't. Mm. So uh, there is definitely a rationale for us to continue to invest as a sector in helping the consumer to understand the risks that they carry. And also, perhaps to your point, how they can mitigate those risks. And in simple terms, again, if you think about it, when you go for a, a mortgage and you and you talk to a mortgage broker or you talk to a bank or a building society about the mortgage, there would normally be some kind of discussion about about your need areas. And the first need area that most people identify is if you die, would you like your mortgage to be paid off so that your surviving partner is not left with a massive great big liability? And of course, the answer to that is yes. Mm. And, and term assurance is actually quite cheap for most people. And therefore, it's a really simple, it's a really simple concept. But what most consumers don't understand and it's almost impossible for them to understand until they really get under the skin of it is the fact that the risks of them dying are much, much lower than the risks of them being ill or having an accident. And that that also um, has an impact on their on their ability to stay in work. Mm. And the risk they don't understand the risk ratios, if you like, between those two those two types of concepts. Yeah. And, and in simple terms, it's you know, it's six or seven or eight times more likely that somebody would suffer a long-term serious illness or have an accident that resulted in a long-term disability than it is for them to die during the term of a mortgage. But they don't understand it. I mean, most people have got a number of reasons why they don't think about disability, apart from it's just difficult. Yeah. Uh, part of it is that then it, then it's never taught about. Uh, and other people think that it's, uh, you know, it's, it, um, it's complicated to sort out. Other people will think about the fact that it's always going to be expensive because it's complicated. And as an industry, we've never really been able to to persuade the customer, the broad customer base to understand, actually, this is a really good thing that you need to do something about. There is a, a moral responsibility. So we don't we don't deal directly with consumers, as, as I mentioned before, but we do deal through intermediaries. So a lot of our work is to help is to try to help brokers to access this market better. We provide guides on underwriting. We provide, you know, video guides. We provide guides on, uh, on, on, on how to set up policies. We provide, you know, video content. We provide marketing solutions, email, you know, and education for the broker market, et cetera, et cetera. So we're trying to feed the bit of the market that we approach, which is the intermediary, in a way that helps them to be to produce better business, more better quality business. Uh, better educated consumers, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where our focus has been. But um, uh, many moons ago, Tom was involved in in trying to set up a an advertising campaign to promote insurance, the, the value of insurance and advice uh, on protection to the UK market. And it was never actually um, got underway. But I do have a view 
that especially with the kind of problems that we've seen this year, mm. that maybe a you know a more industry wide promotion campaign, education campaign might actually be required. We've started some of it two or three years ago. There was the fantastic work that the Income Protection Task Force did mm. around the the, um, the seven families campaigns, which are, which are being reused and and continuing to, to to have an impact. And we all provide case studies to the media and all that sort of thing because there's still a lot of skepticism, understandably about the fact that insurance companies don't don't pay claims whereas in income, income protection they and actually life insurance they really do they pay out an awful lot of in fact, the vast majority of claims get paid mm. <laughs> so there's a, there's an education process for us to continue to do that yeah and, and when you were talking there i mean it, this is a sort of it is semantics but i think it's quite important is it strikes me that with the intermediary base that you work with and then you've got your end customer, I mean, do you consider your intermediaries to be customers or do you see them as partners or is it even a debate as such? I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it is. It's an interesting philosophical debate. We, we internally use the term business partner, mm-hmm. you know, rather than customer. But it, but it is largely, you know, you could argue that's semantics. Mm-hmm. The, the, the reason why why we do it that way around is because the end customer is the person that pays us the premiums. And if and if they go through a claim, we have to we we would deal with that directly. Although we would always involve the the broker if they wanted it, mm. wanted it to be. So for us, it's a business to business relationship with the intermediary. So it's a business partnership. You know, can we help them by simplifying our processes? Can we help them to write more business? Can we help them to market? Can we deal with their issues, their customers' issues? Can we be more flexible in our underwriting approach? All that sort of thing is a kind of B two B relationship management partnership approach. Whereas the end customer is the person that pays us the money each month and we have to deal with with them when they change their address when they change their job when they change uh, when they have a claim etc cetera, etc cetera. so it is largely semantics but it's how we approach those markets in different ways that i think matters so for the relationship with the brokers it's about helping them it's about technical support it's about marketing support it's about underwriting clarity it's about training and education so therefore it tends to be a bit more technical in terms of the content yeah. whereas the end consumer stuff we are trying to make as simple and clear as we possibly can it's a it's a it's a journey that we're on we're definitely not finished but uh, yeah. it's a journey it's a definitely a journey that we're on yeah and and just pick it up on the word journey i mean do you use things like customer and business partner journey mapping as a, as a tool to try and sort of think about these parallel tracks that run along because you've got the sort of the broker experience and you've got the customer experience happening simultaneously, haven't you, as you go through? Yeah, I, I think I'd lie to you if I said it was a, if it was a proper map. We have process maps, but in terms of customer experience maps, we aren't doing that just yet. No. At, a, at a high level, but in terms of what you would understand as a proper CX uh, model, and I would also understand as a proper CX model, we are we aren't doing that. We ha- we haven't got enough people to do it, Neil. To be no. honest, we're too, no, no, no. We're, we're too small. No. But there are some key points that w- those of us that have been around the market, like I have, as long as I have working with brokers, there there are some key points that we know we have to get right. Mm. You know, single point. You know, when somebody phones in with it with an issue, you need that person to be able to deal with the issue. Um, we don't always get that right, but that's that's the objective. Uh, quick turnarounds, consistent underwriting approach, clarity and communicate, all that sort of stuff. We try to get that right and we'll continue to to push further about uh, on those sorts of areas. But yeah, in terms brilliant. of a, tra- a, tra- you know, a traditional CX, proper CX mapping, no, we don't do that. Well, it doesn't sound like you need to do it because you've identified what we'd call the moments of truth anyway, if you wanted to talk jargon for a moment. So um, and you're focusing on that and you've already talked about claims. But um, let's dive into claims because I think it's it's a very, very important part of this. You know, in your promotional messaging, again, you know, picking up, just having a look at the website and looking at how you present yourself to market, you, you quite rightly say, you know, it's our people that make the difference. Um, and you make the specific point that 
your people actually seek to pay claims instead of finding reasons not to go beyond the call of duty to make a real difference. Now, it's easy for someone to say that, but I mean, do you mean it? And, and how does that manifest itself in practice? Yes, we do mean it. And it's a fundamental differentiator for us. We have a number of cases, a number of case studies where we have paid money to people that would not normally qualify. It's one of the advantages of being a mutual is you can take a slightly different view because we haven't got shareholders to pay dividends to. So we, we tend to be more more receptive. But we have had situations where where we have paid physically paid claims which were grey at the best. You know, they, they were they were unclear. And we've taken a view that because of uh, they're the, the part of our business, they're a mem- we're a membership based business that we would pay out. Now, we have to be careful because obviously if you pay too many claims, then the remaining membership, you know, potentially has to see an increase in cost and that sort of thing. So it's not it's not as if we're giving money away for free and we're not a soft touch. But we we are very receptive to managing the individual circumstances of a claim rather than just the claim itself. Mm. And I think we look at we try to look at things holistically. The internal again, if you if you talk to my colleagues, you'd you'd, you'd hear them say these things. How would we want to be dealt with if it was us on the phone? Right. You know, that's the first principle. It's the same with designing products. We again, we've got an internal an internal mantra on this. We will never launch a product that we ourselves would not buy. Mm-hmm. And it's a and it's kind of written in the DNA. We are not here, you know, to make money for the sake of making money. We are here to build a long, sustainable, membership-based, mutual business that has really, really strong values at its core. And, uh, and that should come across in terms of every, every touch point. Again, we don't get it right all the time because we do have, you know, cues and calls at, at times and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's what we're aiming for. That's what we're really aspiring to do. And obviously getting decision making as close to the customer point as you possibly can is the starting point. We don't want things being escalated up and down massive decision trees. You know, if somebody on the call can make a decision, we'd much rather they made the decision, even if it turns out to be wrong, as long as yeah. they, they don't make too many wrong ones. But, uh, you know, we, we'd much rather try and empower people to be able to make horrible word, but you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Empower people at the front end to say, actually, this is an issue. I think I can deal with it. And actually just to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes a ton of sense. And I'd like to come back to culture, if I may, in a minute, just to dig a little bit deeper into that. But before I do, just thinking about that point that you made about the mentality of the claims assessor, the person actually doing that. I mean, how can I put this? Um, When you recruit people to come into the claims thing, do you bring in people from other mutuals or do you have to kind of retrain the mindset to look at it in a different way or yeah no it's 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 a combination of things neil really we at interview we do talk quite a lot about about culture and we talk a lot about ethos and what we're here for and all that sort of stuff and we test during interview process a little bit you know just by asking sensible questions you know how people feel about about the jobs that they do so if we were recruiting from an outsourced business for example because there's quite big outsourced businesses in and around gloucestershire then their history and their processes would be driven around slas so the first thing they think about is, can I get this piece of business focused or this activity done within a certain period of time? Because that's what the requirements are. And I kind of go, well, that's okay up to a point, but where does the quality measurement come in? So it's got to be quality and quantity. And then we've also found, quite interesting actually during the interview process, what are the things, the kind of questions we would ask is, what are the things that you are doing in your current job that cause you to have a bit of a prick of conscience? And we use that kind of question. In fact, we do it in, this, in our staff surveys as well. We, we test culture quite regularly and, and conscience questions are really quite important uh, because we want people to say, do you know what, in this environment that I'm working at the moment, we do most things right most of the time, but 
there's these other circumstances. I just want to do a little bit more for somebody, but I can't because I'm restrained by SLAs or whatever. And what we do is to try and encourage people to look at the customer, the issue they're dealing with holistically, and mm-hmm. to take decisions in a way that enables them to sleep at night, you know, yeah. and to look yeah. after people when they, when they need us. As I say, it's not profligate. We're not talking about, you know, spraying and praying tens of millions of pounds around. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if somebody needs to send... I'm just trying to give an exa- a recent example. Somebody made an interesting decision that, that, that they had a particular difficult claim that involved a child that we paid. But could, can somebody send that child a small teddy bear for, you know, cost you 10 quid? Of course you can. Just get on with it. You know, you don't need to refer that up to a management, you know, function. It's those kind of moments of truth. We just look at, if, it comes back to what I said, really. If you were the customer and you were making a claim, how would you want that to be dealt with? You know, it's that sort of simplicity. No, that's really interesting. And you just prompted something in my mind when you were talking there, which is an experience that I had a number of years ago when I first worked for a small mutual. And uh, I, I won't say who it was, but it was a, an income protection provider as well. And I remember going to a research evening, a focus group, where we were thinking about some of the changes to the products that we were going to make and things. And um, I was just amazed by sitting behind the glass and watching a group of members talking, A, about the society, but B, claims behavior. So it strikes me that mutual customers that get it and do genuinely feel like they're members behave in quite a different way to a typical claim-making um, insurance customer kind of, you know, not everyone, I'm, I'm generalizing, but, and, and to the point where it was kind of, you know, you know, sort of, they, I think we were testing moving from a, a seven day wait period to, to something of like 14 days and, you know, for, for somebody who could claim very, very quickly. And there was this amazing moment where a couple of people put their hands up and sort of said, well, I claimed, I sort of didn't really need to. And the other people in the room almost rounded on them and sort of said, you know, like you're damaging the society, you can't do that, you know. And and so there was a genuine care amongst the community of members that they realised as well why the mutual existed, the fact that it was there for the benefit of everybody and that you shouldn't abuse that fund. And I, I was... I was amazed by it. I mean, I, I never forget it because it was. I've not seen it since. <laughs> uh, That's a really interesting thing. But I, I would suspect that those people, those members, had bought directly from the society mm. rather than had been had been bought through a broker. Yeah. Uh, mutuality in the broker market, so selling through intermediaries, is less important these days than it was historically when we were selling direct to customer going back decades, uh, because people then actually understood what it meant to being part of a club. And I think we've lost something. We've lost a little bit of something in that transition. Right. So, you know, the the education process that we need to follow with the intermediaries is to explain, if it's relevant for them, why mutuality matters and why it matters to their customers. So, you know, the fact that most mutuals will pay more claims, a higher proportion of claims anyway, than than PLCs, is is factually true. Historically, there, there's evidence that, that this is this is what happens. And I'm not suggesting that the proprietary firms are bad, by the way, because they, they, they've all got their own their own business plans to meet. It's just they do things in different ways. Mm-hmm. And um, when people understand, when the intermediaries really understand what mutuality means in terms of the, the ethics and the ethos within a business, then when they buy into that, they buy into it quite well. But, but a lot of customers don't. They just don't care. And again, that's another thing we need to just be aware of is we could be pushing all sorts of messages about mutuality mm-hmm. and the end consumer goes, actually, I don't care. Just give me the cheapest product and pay my mm-hmm. claim. That's all I want. I don't care about all the other fluff. Yeah. So we did, we've done some research recently, for example, which I won't bore you with. But um, one of the things we looked at is what added value services would our membership value the most? Because most insurers do, they, they've got a basic product and they've got this halo of yeah. of other other propositions. 
And because I'm a Yorkshireman, as you know, one of the things that I put on in our halo was, would you just like us to give you some of your money back? <laughs> Guess yeah. which one got the highest vote? <laughs> yeah. So mutuality, yeah. you know, is, is one of these really soft and cuddly and, in, you know, uh, sort of feelings that you have. But in mm. reality, quite a lot of consumers are still quite cynical about, about all this stuff. Right. Uh, and it's about actually it's just about cash. Now, it won't yeah. be for everybody, but it, it is a quite, a, quite a sobering, um, a bit of sobering yeah, research. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. we could have launched all sorts of services that people don't really value. No, I get that. And I think you've been very clear. You know, at the end of the day, when it comes to the moments of truth, you've got to do them well. If you do them well, then you, you serve your customers in the way that they're expecting. And, and, our, our, and, we, don't get, and we don't get it right all the time. No, no, no insurer does. But, we, but no. we really do try very hard to make sure we do the best we can. Yeah. And, and just sort of just digging a little bit more into culture. I mean, you, you talked there about putting yourself in the shoes of the customer in terms of product design, in terms of how you deal with things. I mean, that's empathy. That's that's obviously the the kind of central tenet of any customer-centric organization, I guess. What does it feel like to work at Holloway? Can you sort of, I mean, you, you've been very clear about the kind of mindset that you're trying to instill and, and it, it feels like it's quite natural within the business. I mean, what what does it feel like, you know, day in the life, week in the life of, of working at Holloway and, and perhaps in normal times? And we'll talk about this year in a moment. In, in normal times, so pre-COVID, when, if COVID wasn't around, it's a business that's it's got a real energy in it. There's a lot of, of busy people, positively busy people doing really good work. Mm. It's also a business that has a massive legacy <laughs> of, of very old technology. So some of that really good work is a lot of manual processing, unfortunately, historically, which is why we're in the process of replatforming. But um People really care. They really, really care about what happens in our business when they come in. And that doesn't matter whether they're in IT, whether they're in member service, customer services, whether they're in underwriting, whether they're in HR, whether they're on the exec, it doesn't matter. People bring that passion and that energy and that enthusiasm to work. And the reason why they do that is because we've got such a clear view as to what we're trying to build. Right. You know, we're trying to build a business that's got a sustainable future, that, that has differentiation, that puts the customer at physically at the heart of everything that we do, but actually acts out that in reality and is a great place to work. So it's a bit of fun uh, and, and all that sort of thing. So we're trying to build that sort of ethos, that sort of culture. Mm. So that's typically is what you'd see. There are there are pressures. There's always pressures when you've got phones ringing and when you've got, uh, when you're trying to build a lot of change. Because if you think about it, when I first joined four and a half years ago, we had 28 staff. We've now got 92 you know, and we have to build internal functions in the way that you would as you're going through a growth strategy. And some people find that comfortable because it's a bit, a little bit more corporate. And some people find it uncomfortable because it's not quite as cozy and comfortable as it used to be in the old days. Yeah. But what we're trying to do is to is to bring the value that you get from corporate oversight on things in a way that still enables us to live the values that we've got and the and to live to the you know to the objectives that we've built. Yeah. So you know, it's a supportive culture. It's a no blame culture. I have a personal hatred for politics. Company politics tend to tend to kill creativity and that sort of thing. So we don't have massive. Sorry, we are. We now have more hierarchies because we're bigger, but I don't really like hierarchies. I don't believe in hierarchies at all. You know, organizational charts shouldn't be pyramids in my view. They should be circles. But that's a different. Um, <laughs> but that sort of comes through in the way that we in the way that we operate. You know, mm. so that's what it's traditionally like. Yeah, it's a, it's a positive, good, good place to work. Lots of good people, but it's the commitment that I just can't, I, I can't overstate. The commitment that people that people bring to work, the, their enthusiasm, the willingness to get things done, the willingness to support each other as well as the members and the and the intermediaries, is uh, is is unbelievable. Actually, it really is unbelievable. And funnily enough, we've seen that more in the COVID environment. So whilst it's been bloody difficult for us yeah. all to be able to move from 
you know, 80 people in an office through to everybody 80 odd working from home and all of the problems that that creates, uh, including people working much longer hours and, and not having the same in interactions with their colleagues on a day to day basis, which is mm. really hard. The same level of enthusiasm and commitment still exists. And uh, to be honest with you, I, I, I can't say thank you enough to my mm. colleagues for what they've done this year. It's just physically impossible. And we've had to make some really horrible decisions. Mm. But they're, but they're still most of them. <laughs> most of them are still here, and mm. they're still doing it because they know why we're doing it. And I and I respect them hugely for that. Yeah, uh, it's very very powerful to hear. And and it sounds like it, it comes back to clarity of vision, clarity of purpose. They know why you exist. They know where you're trying to get, and and that's 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 the secret. Okay. And we do reinforce that regularly, you know, because it's important. It's easy. It's very easy, especially when people are working remotely, to forget. Because you just get you, you end up in an even smaller silo than the silo that you were working in before. You're in a silo of one, and you know we we, we try we try as much as we can to to break silos down. I think in the first few months of of the COVID pandemic, we got really close to doing that very very well, and then people forget a bit and they forget to do quite so much comms. And then we had some people back in the office and some people not quite there. Mm, mm. And then we've had to send more people home again. So we've lost a little bit of that. Funny enough, which is one of the things I'm I'm really keen that we get back on the front foot of that for next year. So mm. it's, it's a really it's a really important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And do you think, uh, again, it's a, it's a debate that's raging across just about every industry sector, probably across the globe at the moment. And do you think in terms of ways of working um, that there will be some stuff that does stay because it's been positive through the COVID experience? I mean, obviously, flexible and home working is one thing, but is there, is, you know, maybe that, well, question really, open question where I'm putting words in your mouth. Is that a consideration going forward? And is there anything else that's come out of it that's positive? There are, there are, two, there are two factors that spring to my mind, uh, Neil, which is that, and again, this is so the first one is a hackneyed thing that lots of people have said, which is that the COVID pandemic has brought forward by however many years the move to more flexible working across the economy where it's possible and for people who are based in offices that's that's clearly the case so the acceleration for us is to is to be able to work out how we can move from a fixed office infrastructure to a much more flexible office infrastructure and if you've got you know teams of thousands that's quite easy to do if you've got teams of less than 100 it's actually more difficult so that's the first factor so i think there will genuinely be more more flexibility moving forward and for us as an employer there certainly will be we just need to work out how to do it so we can still maintain you know decent quality of service decent, decent service standards and also the, t the team spirit that i alluded alluded to before yeah. Yeah. maintaining that whilst working some in the office some out the office is actually quite tricky mm -hmm. which brings me to the second point which is technology we have had to make some tough decisions on things like closing offices down and getting people working from home and that's therefore made us invest in technology that we would we would probably have got to at some point mm. but it's but it's definitely brought that forward and i think we're only just scratching the surface on technology so uh, the, the 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 intermediary to insurance company technology is largely telephony at the moment uh, with some online functionality but but we need to push that a lot further but also the interaction between our our sales teams and our admin teams with head office again using technology in a different way so i think there's a lot of technology technological changes the the usual stuff that we that we've all heard of around uh, you know machine learning and ai and all that sort of stuff for small companies like ours is quite difficult to access but there are things we can do to automate more and to make it easier for our both our end customer and our business partners uh, using technology in a different way so that's 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 now on our radar in a in a higher uh, priority than has probably ever been the case. And are you seeing much demand for that from consumers, or is that more from the intermediary sector? Is it, how are you seeing the demand arise? 
if we write to a customer with a physical letter, which we still do on occasion, unfortunately, and we and we and we tell them to write back to us with a bit of paper, then I don't know about you, but that's not the way modern businesses no. should work. No. So for us, the technology is around electronic communication two way, and also developing portals where we have static data that, that and policy details that our that our members can get access to, mm. and we are seeing calls for that. Wouldn't it be easier if you just emailed this stuff out? But we will be able to on the new platform, but we physically aren't on the old one so that you know we are definitely on that journey mm. with the intermediary channel anything that enables them to be more efficient be a good thing for the sector as a whole so sending electronic information is only part of it my, my nirvana is to be able to provide information directly into the databases that they use on a day-to-day -day basis without it touching the sides so they don't have to phone us for anything, they don't have to email us for anything. All of the updates we can push through using whatever protocols we need to so that the updates on policy terms um, and changes and direct debit failures and all that kind of stuff just automatically appears in their system. So when their administration teams log on every day, they've got a list of things from us about things that are happening in their business. So there's, you know, we still want to speak to them you know, because they're hugely important as partners, but it should be a lot more efficient. So we can enable them to be more efficient then obviously we should all benefit, including the, the, the members, of course. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, good. Just moving on to sort of, I suppose, customer feedback and, and taking into consideration what your customers need when you're designing things. I mean, just, just sort of thinking of two aspects, if you like, designing propositions that people want and creating a service proposition that meets the needs of your customers. I mean, how do you go about engaging with members intermediaries there's always a bit of a tension i find when I'm, I'm doing that sort of work around meeting the needs of, of both those parties in the right way how, how do you go about doing that in a, in a number of ways the, the obvious one is just by speaking to people <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, we, it, it's still we are still a people business and yeah. uh, and our our sorry the whole sector is still a people sector but we are definitely a people business so um, we do polls and uh, the odd bits of research and that sort of thing with both intermediaries and end consumers i mentioned before about you know the, the the core product and the halo of services my vision ultimately is to end up with a group of i don't know let's pick a number of thousand members that we interact with much much more routinely than we do at the right. moment so kind of them, yeah. well it's it's more of a community right you know it's a community approach so we want to test things talk to them more regularly understand what they mean and that sort of thing okay that's the kind of membership base and there's loads of other things we could do but in reality that's probably where where we'll end up because the rest of them are probably unaffordable and with brokers we learn quite quickly when we get things wrong from the intermediary market, <laughs> as you can as you can probably imagine but we do speak to them we do speak to our especially our larger supporting accounts very regularly and we we don't have a one-size-fits-all model which again at the moment is a bit of a luxury but uh, but it's true so you know we'll, we'll have a standard model that we expect that all brokers will want to use and then you know some of the bigger firms say well that, that actually that doesn't quite work for us because we need it either in a different format or at a different time of the day or a different time of the week or whatever it is and then we'll adapt position to meet their requirements where we physically can and that's quite difficult to do but we've managed to achieve it in most cases and our, our new platform, our IT platform, when that goes in beginning of next year, will enable a lot more of that stuff to happen automatically and it gives us a lot more flexibility. It's old fashioned, but we, we talk to people, Neil, that's what we do. Yeah, no, no, there's not, nothing old fashioned about that. I, it, it's interesting. I mean, a couple of things there. First of all, the sort of the difference between project related feedback and actually 
responding to day to day. I mean, when when you're getting, I mean, I, I, setting aside the oh my goodness me, we've made a terrible mistake, and you know, a hundred intermediaries have phoned us this morning. Obviously, you just get on and deal with that because it becomes a crisis. But in terms of ongoing tweaks and things, I mean, do you have a specific? governance forum or meeting or something that, that talks about member yeah uh, yeah we do we've got a change forum um, we've got a, pro, a product forum as well so both of those do do those sorts of things we happen to be very fortunate that, that a number of people from our ops functions have come from bigger organizations that have got um you know lean six sigma type experience and therefore the kind of continuous improvement model and they are always looking at uh, at improving things and uh, sometimes we're able to to move things quite quickly you know, so some of the smaller things that you change sometimes make a huge difference, and the automation requirements actually aren't that much. So we've made a number of a number of of internal changes actually that don't aren't obvious to the end consumer or the broker. They just make it so much easier for our for our own teams to continue to uh, you know to improve the service uh, that they provide. Some of it's workflow type things. Some of it is is just automation of calculations, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, regulatory stuff that you have to do, I guess. We have to do that too, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, good, thank you. And, I mean, just so again, you know, picking up on a little bit about 2020 and some of the events, it's not all just been about COVID. There's been some other stuff going on, all sorts of racial tensions surfacing and all, all those sorts of things. I was, I was just interested in whether you feel that the concept of mutuality has actually been strengthened in any way by the sort of, almost a feeling of community that's been developed in some areas of, of society or indeed whether actually that's just going to fade away and that's never going to have any long-term impact. I mean, I, I, it's, I think the jury's out, but I'd just be interested in your views on that, whether you feel that that is something that almost mutuals are having their time as a result of, you know, how people look at society and community. Yeah, I think mutual businesses, once the end consumer understands what that actually means, they do tend to buy into it. They may not buy into it, you know, hook, line and sinker, but they realize that it's a different ethos to how you run a business. And that's been a global phenomenon, actually, not just in the UK. There has been a genuine move towards mutuality across the financial services sector in a number of overseas jurisdictions, as well as a little bit in the UK as well. Mm. Because we, because we should have an advantage, in theory, not only the financial advantage of not having to pay dividends, but also... As I say, ethically, it's a different kind of way of, of looking, yeah. at, looking at a business. So I think there's been, a, there's been a global trend towards mutuality. I would also counter that, though, to say that there's been a certain amount of direct criticism of mutuality. And I think that's fair because there are some things that we have to take on the chin, like the historical governance models for mutuals haven't always been as robust as they would be in a PLC, for example. And therefore, the, the discipline of having you know, proper governance frameworks, proper independent NEDs, proper board selections, and all those kinds of things, I think are are, are needed to mm. continue, you know, how mutuals are perceived in the market in a good way, I should hasten to add. So I'm not sure if it's a, if it's a mutuality thing or a race thing or, or whatever, but I think there is a there is a genuine trend towards inclusivity globally that we have seen in lots of different pieces of research from multiple organ- uh, multiple uh, research firms uh, over the course of these last few years. And, and the inclusivity, I think, is important. Now, for us, inclusivity means everything about being inclusive. So we develop an underwriting philosophy, which is inclusive. We develop a claims philosophy, which is inclusive. We develop a recruitment philosophy, which is inclusive. You know, it's, we don't have exclusive thinking in terms of what we do. So for underwriting, it means we will try to find a way of providing you some cover. 
you know, if we don't have a computer says no model, so we have no automatic medical underwriting limits, for example. Right. Most insurers do. So if, yeah. you're, if your sum assured is above X, then there's an automatic, you know, medical report or a GP report or a, right. a medical exam or whatever. We don't have that. We underwrite okay. on individual cases. So that's an inclusive approach. Our belief is that if we can provide some element of cover for a customer, it is better than then having nothing. So we'll try and do that. And it's the same ethos in terms of how we deal with the claims. It's the mm. same sort of principle. Can we find a way of looking after this person? And it's a bit like, I, I know that we will not be able to change the world and we won't be able to change the market because we're only a small firm with less than 30,000 members. But for those 30,000 members, we should really try to be the best that we can and to mm. do the best for them that we can. And it's that kind of ethos. Interesting. And it, I, again, another thing that's just flashing up in my mind, there, you know, we, we, we see a lot of organisations, particularly the very big globals and, and um, large national organisations, having tremendous efforts to try and bring about corporate social responsibility programs or ESG, another another sort of acronym there. It sounds like you don't need that because you're kind of philosophically already there or, or do you focus on that? I mean, is it something that you you talk about actively within the organization and go and seek opportunities to, to drive those sort of things? Uh, ESG largely impacts investment managers in terms of our, yeah. our sector and, and we use a fund manager that has ESG filters and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's more about uh, the the S part mm. and the and the G part are really important. So we have to have sensible governance. We yeah. have to have appropriate governance. We have a very very skilled and very experienced board of directors, especially the the, the Neds. They're not historically again smaller societies, smaller friendly societies. It used to be the great and the good from the local town. So you'd end up with the you know with a with a local lawyer or a, or a, you know the mayor or something like that. and and they'd be incredibly willing incredibly willing and really, really, you know, focused on the business with lots and lots of positives, but no real experience in how to run a financial services business. And I think the professionalism that's come in over these last five, 10 years, or more than that, actually, probably 10, 15 years, is that the quality of the non-exec directors in the mutual sector has definitely improved over time. We've experienced that same positivity. The value that we have from a really, really experienced group of independently minded, our board meetings are quite fun, as you can imagine, mm. independently minded, experienced people is huge. And they really do keep us on our toes, mm. and rightly so. And I think that governance responsibility is huge. And it's not anything that we take lightly. And we try to do it in a way that, again, provides a clear demonstration of how this adds value to the membership and the, and the members themselves. The social side, again, on one side, our claims experience is a kind of social, yeah. it's, it's a social agenda. But also we do um, sponsorships and all that sort of stuff in local in, in our local community. We managed to find out purely by accident that we have a um, charity that's in Gloucester that looks after, provides respite care for the parents of children who have limited life expectations. So under the age of seven, there's hardly any government support at all uh, for anybody with, with a child that's severely disabled and, and is likely to die. So um, this particular charity was set up a number of years ago. And it was we, we would just happen to be looking at, at, at the kind of society in, in which we operate and happened to find this particular charity purely out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And it was only when I was talking to some colleagues about what we might be wanting to do, we found out that two or three of our own staff had experience of taking their own family members through that same charity. And they just didn't say anything. We just didn't know. Wow. So then it becomes quite personal mm. and it becomes quite important mm. and uh, and that sort of thing. So um, we look at it through those sorts of lenses. We try and work out, you know, what are the things that we can do as a business that would actually have an impact somewhere? 
mm. rather than trying to, as I say, trying to change humanity. Climate change will be another one for us. You know, in theory, an insurance company based in Gloucester, you know, what, what's, the, what's the overall climate, uh, you know, climate footprint that we've got? Eventually, we'll have to work all that stuff out because it's important that we do. But there are some short-term things that we can do today, you know, about how, how we reduce the amount of printing we do, which we've done overnight, actually, and we'll continue to push harder when we've got the new IT systems in. Uh, not having as many people traveling around the country has, has reduced our carbon footprint. And, you know, the question for me is, will we ever go back to having meetings in London? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. It, I'm not sure I'll need to go there that often, apart from to, to see regulators and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, the, the, there will be those kind of physical changes. And then we'll continue to push that boundary, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it'll be an interesting, interesting to see how those things evolve. Yeah. So Turkey voted for Christmas question then. Presumably you see a future for mutuality in, in the UK market. I do, but it, but it has to be relevant. We have to make mutuality relevant to people again. And uh, and again, if you if you have your cynical customer hat on, you know, insurance companies are only there to, do, to make money for, for themselves. Actually, that isn't true. You know, mutuals are not for profit. We don't make profit for, for the benefit of shareholders or anybody else. It's there for the benefit of the members. Mm. So, you know, we need to get that back in. So I, I really do see a very strong future for mutuals, provided that we can be relevant. And the how that we look at look at markets, for example, and how we look at uh, consumer groups and how we look at communities, we could provide a very different sort of model than the traditional insurance market moving forward. So there is a strong future. Yeah, I agree. Okay, thank you. I mean, that, that's been fantastic. And I just want to sort of wrap up, really, just want to ask you a couple of good, you probably already answered this, but I'm going to just answer your question anyway. But so what do you think being truly customer centric means today? What does it actually mean? I think in simple terms, it means treating people like family. And it's having that sort of ethos of, like I said before, you know, if, if it was me on the end of the phone, what, what experience would I have? Uh, a very good friend of mine once described treating customers fairly, this, this regulatory initiative as, if you do something, would your mum be proud? <laughs> and, and it's never and it's never forgotten i've never forgotten that that was just mm. just in harper from lv but it was one of the, it was one of those things that i've never forgotten so that's what it means to me you know treating somebody like a member of your family if you can and you know does it make you feel good and does it make would it make your parents be proud if they yeah. knew you were doing it that's what customer centric yeah, yeah brilliant brilliant that's a, a great way of looking at it as opposed to the does it pass the red face test if it got out in the press sort of thing which is a slightly more negative way of looking at it but same sort of connotations yeah great and can you Recall an experience that you've had personally, maybe something quite recently, that, that defines fantastic customer experience from your point of view. Not not a Holloway experience, but just some you know general service or, or interaction you've had. And it's, it's quite a difficult question to answer at the moment because a lot of people aren't really doing a lot. But uh... Yes, I can. And it's quite pertinent and it's quite tricky. My GP practice is called the Adams practice in, in Poole. And they decided that it would be a bloody good idea to do the flu vaccines, not the COVID vaccines, the flu vaccines in a really different way. And I, like most of us, we tend to get texts from our GP surgeries these days uh, about what's going on. Mm. And I got invited because I'm old and I'm overweight and all that sort of stuff. I got, I got invited for a, for a flu vaccine. Would you like to come in for a flu vaccine? So, yeah, of course I will. No problems at all. How are you going to do it? Knowing that there's millions of these things that are going to go around, not COVID ones, say just the traditional flu vaccine. Mm. What they had done is they'd worked out that if they combine their talents and sorry their um, patient book with the patient books of the five or six other local GP practices, mm. they could do this by taking over pool ferry port and getting drive-through flu vaccines. And I, I kind of said to myself, well, that's that's going to be interesting. Let's give it a go. 
so I get all the text. You have to all the stuff was done online and through text when you book your your flu jab, what time you've got to go, where you go, that what'll happen when you get there. It's all done remotely. Nobody nobody phoned me. It was all done remotely. And I went down to Pool uh, Pool Ferry Port, which is quite a big ferry port. And the organization they did it in shifts, and the organization was absolutely superb. Mm. And they just got it absolutely right. Now, okay, it, take, it took a bit of time, but you take a cup of coffee and you sit in a queue for a little bit of time, and you gradually work your way around the snaking, uh, you know, back to back, uh, back to uh, nose to tail cars, and eventually you get in to the place where you give you the vaccine. But to me, it was they really understood that this was really important because of what was happening with COVID. They'd explained it in a way that was really simple for me as a as a as a busy CEO to understand, and they made it easy for me to actually fulfil. Right. What I knew I needed to do anyway, in, in a way that was just really, really quite clever, I thought. Mm. So that was that, that's that's the that's the latest. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I could talk about about the opposite as well. But, uh, you know, not, well, not with well, them, I was just going to you know, well, no, no, I was, I was gonna ask you exactly the same question. So uh, without necessarily naming the organization, but, um, you know, uh, w- what about something that epitomizes being the opposite of customer centric? Have you got an experience that you could share with us on that? Can I combine it with something else? Because yeah. the. The, the, the COVID nonsense that, that that we've all had to put up with has meant that we've had to personally cancel three or four different family holidays this year mm-hmm. and rebook some and all that sort of stuff. And the experience that we've had with the travel agencies that we've used, the travel businesses, British Airways and, and TUI in particular, but also local local um, cottage uh, rental places has been absolutely first class. Mm-hmm. We've had to wait a bit of money, a bit of time for some other cash back, but everything has gone smoothly. Now, I had a query on one of the on one of the the transactions and all I was trying to do was to change a direct debit amount. So my, my, my account is set up, so I pay the full amount by direct debit. There was a bill that was just about to come in, and I got a credit through from British Airways that meant that the credit card company was going to take more out of my, my bank account than I actually owed them. So I went on the app, the simple app, to say, you know, what, what's your query? Type to my query. I think it took me 15 goes before they realized, the app realized, because it's obviously it's not real people that, that they couldn't they couldn't deal with my query, which is basically how do I net off a credit? That's all it was. You need to phone somebody. So I phoned somebody and I said, this, this is the issue. Yeah, it happens all the time. So no problems at all. My direct debit is collecting on this day. Can you change the, the, the direct debit date? Bearing in mind, it was two weeks hence, to which the answer was no. Right. So I now have to cancel my direct debit. Yes. Pay a smaller amount and then reset it up again. You kind of go, Really? Is it that is it that hard these days? Now I'm sure there are you know backs rules about how long it takes for you know direct debits and that sort of thing, but it was just physically not possible. And that was the thing where it, got, it just rankled a bit. I kind of expected you know not to have fantastic service, but everything else, genuinely everything else that I've had to deal with, mm. whilst it's a few of it's been been a bit delayed, but we've got all the money back that we were asked that we were asking for, and most of the transactions have gone through pr- pretty quickly. Mm. But there's this just one bit of wrinkling. If you build an app. Make sure the app, especially if it's not not being being policed by people, make sure it does what what what, what you say it should yeah, do. Yeah, it, yeah. This one didn't. <laughs> no, 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 no. Great example, and again, I probably can certainly relate to um, surprisingly high levels of service. Ultimately, around um, getting money back quite easily in some cases, which I you know I've I was surprised about. Definitely. Final question, I promise. Just again, it's probably come through quite clearly when we've been talking. But can you just sort of share one lesson that you've learned in your time as a leader that you could never have learnt at business school. Never have learnt at business school. I've only been to two business schools, and I think they 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 taught me quite well. I think the the most important lesson that I've learnt over the course of these last few years is how to interact purpose with communication, and how you can never have enough communication about what you're trying to do, the purpose of your business. 
it is something which is taught in business schools, as you know, about being purpose led and all that sort of stuff. But the being able to see that into practice mm. and to be able to do it consistently or try to do it consistently and try to communicate, you can never do enough of it. You really can't. And when the wheels fall off occasionally, it's normally because we've forgotten the most important thing here is the reason why we're here as a business. Why Why do we have a right to exist? The answer is we don't. Mm. So unless we really live this ethos and we live this philosophy, we have this this common purpose Mm. Uh, you know, you, you, you lose that at your, at, your, at your peril. You really do. So I think for me, it would be everybody can understand purpose and understand how important internal comms is. The thing that, that never really comes across in business schools is just how much time you need to invest in that. Yeah. Brilliant answer. Thank you for that. Stuart, it's been an absolute pleasure. Really lots of great stuff we've brought out there around, you know, how you do business, how the customer is, is just an intrinsic part of, of, or the member in your case, of what you do, even though you're not necessarily directly interacting with them all the time and um, a lot of stuff about internal culture. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to share all of that. Pleasure. And um, yeah, well, I hope to speak again very soon. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye.